Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for July 2013. I am writer, hyphen critic, hyphen credible Australian accent, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... Hi there everybody, I am writer, hyphen director, hyphen striker Eureka, Paul Anthony Nelson, and our very special guest with us this month is... Christy Best, who is a writer, hyphen actor, hyphen director, hyphen producer, hyphen presenter, hyphen roundabout fuckwit, Sagittarian. Um, <laughs> sorry, am I allowed to swear? Whoops. Sure. Um, <laughs> well, that, that is an impressive list of hyphens, and thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you for having me. We're talking the films that have come out this past month, July 2013, in Australia, and it's been an emotional month for me because Steven Soderbergh's last film... Behind the Candelabra has come out. We thought Side Effects was going to be his last theatrically released one, but Behind the Candelabra came to cinemas in Australia, so this is actually his last one. And it's an interesting project to go out on a Liberace biopic. Particularly when you look at the, the very final scene, yeah. <laughs> as like as a way for someone to leave the stage. It's it's kind of interesting. Like It's almost like Soderbergh may see himself leaving the stage in a similarly mm. flamboyant manner. I I really like this. It's a great story. Um, it's also kind of creepy as hell. Liberace is this kind of you know leering old man, and and the the stuff he puts poor um, Scott Thorson through um, uh, Matt Damon's character is just <laughs> horrific. Mm. Obviously, they're very different films, and they would be because of the content. But in comparison to Side Effects, how did you rate it? I, I, I preferred this. Side effects I liked a lot, but there's a type of film that Soderbergh makes that I really respond to, and I've, been, I've spent a long time trying to identify exactly what it is, but I think this is, this is a very personal, character-based film for him, and because it's, even though it seems like it's got nothing at all in common with Sex, Lies and Videotape, it's sort of, it, it does sort of feel like he's coming full circle, coming back around to those themes. So this is sort of the film that, uh, that I, I prefer to see from him. There, there's some wonderful um, observational details going on here, some great complex relationships. Like, I enjoyed Side Effects a lot. I thought it was a, it was a really tight, solid little thriller with some kind of nicely lurid noir touches. Whereas, yeah, this this is more kind of grounded and a little bit scathing and really evocative of, of, a, of a certain time and place that mm. is also a hell of a lot unkinder to gay people. Um, yeah. And the sort of outrageous length someone will go to to, to cover up their, their true nature. Um, but then it gets you thinking about the people that have to, still have to do it in this day and age and their own struggles. And on that level, it's quite poignant, but but Liberace's not a very nice man. And I, and I almost feel like just, I, I don't know, but just as a sidebar, HBO telly movies seem to be kind of cornering the market in mad, old, uh, possessive artists uh, mm. this year between Hitchcock and The Girl, Phil Spector and this. Mm. I don't know what's going on over there. That's interesting. Yeah, I like that. I, I, I really feel like there's no loss of energy here. Like, Soderbergh's going out... And we say going out as if we're never going to see anything else from him. It's just theatrical films, that's it. But even so, it does feel like the end of a chapter in a big way, and there's no loss of energy there. It, 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 it's not somebody whose career has dwindled. It's, it's, uh, it's as strong as it ever was, um, which is both brilliant and 
heartbreaking for <laughs> those of us obsessed with his work. But it's been a month of of my own personal artistic heroes releasing films because Joss Whedon, who I'm a huge fan of, adapted Shakespeare, and I'm a, I'm a huge Shakespeare buff. Uh, and so on those levels, I, 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 I'm, you know, the target audience for Much Ado About Nothing, but also I probably shouldn't talk about it, even though it's like almost my favourite film of the year, because my wife is the publicist. So, <laughs> Paul, I'll throw it to you. I, I don't know. I think because it's Joss Whedon, you can give yourself a pass. You could just, you know, <laughs> let fly. Um, I love this. I, I just thought it, it, and I didn't necessarily expect to love it. Because, you know, Americans doing Shakespeare is always a little bit of a dicey proposition. I, l- I love the whole mythology behind it being a, you know, a, a film he shot uh, during post-production on The Avengers, did it in a couple of weeks around his house with his friends, and all of that I really liked. But it's like, is this actually going to hang together? Is it actually going to work as an adaptation of Shakespeare? And as someone who loves the Kenneth Branagh version and, and, and all of that, um, all of this came into it. I was really struck by how well it honoured the language. And that was something I did not expect. Mm. Um, I thought most of the actors, almost all, um, handled it beautifully and brought a real modern verve to it. But, but also, <laughs> like, everybody is drinking in this film. It's like the most alcoholic adaptation of Shakespeare I've ever seen. <laughs> but it, as, um, as was said by the producer of the film, Kai Cobb, it, the plot makes more sense if everybody's drunk. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. All of these machinations make, and that could be said we, for a lot of films. Absolutely, <laughs> and a lot of Shakespeare. Like the weird space jumps they come to, and like assumptions about people make total sense if you if you're pissed. But yeah, I, I, I thought it was it was gorgeous to look at and embrace the fun and the uh, and the ebullience of the of the whole um, play. And yeah, I just thought it was a delight. And you're not married to anyone who made it, so uh, so you're, you you can say that objectively. Um, <laughs> and much better than the Avengers. Let me just put that out there. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Because they're basically the same film. Totally. <laughs> now, Christy, I am really, really curious uh, about how the heat uh, worked because even though I there's a current type of comedy that I don't really like. What buddy um, comedy? Not a fan. Well, sort of the um, even though I don't even know if he had anything to do with it, the Apatow school of comedy I don't really like, <laughs> and it's sort of the heat looks like it's kind of come out of that. But I'm intrigued because I really like Sandra Bullock doing comedy and I, I don't feel she's really had a comedy that's as funny as she is. So sure. how, how was it? Well, yeah, that's, I mean, that, that's a good point. I think, you know, when it started, people hadn't really given me great reviews. I was in LA <laughs> and everyone that told me about it that had seen it uh, was male. And they're all like, yeah, it's okay. But they're all like, but I love This Is The End. And it was funny because I was like, yeah, this is the end was okay. Like, I got it. It was kind of like the kind of film I felt you would make for your buddies when you're drunk to screen at a party where everyone's drunk. Like, it was just it was just mm. fun. Um, but with the heat, it was interesting because, I don't know, this is, this is an interesting way of seeing things. And I'm not sure if anyone else felt this way. But I felt like Sandra Bullock was trying very hard to try to find a new way into that whole FBI role. She's like, I don't want anyone to think that this is miscongeniality, so I'm going to try to attack it from a different place. And it kind of like, it just didn't start with the same kind of vigor she usually starts every film with. 
she's usually got a very strong character in place and you get it and it was kind of it was slow to warm up I felt because of that so it was actually when you first get introduced to Melissa McCarthy's character that you're like this is awesome this is going to be an amazing film um, so a few people had said they felt that Sandra Bullock, you know, was overshadowed by Melissa McCarthy, and I just think it was a slow starter. They came together really well, and there was some random dropping out points I felt throughout it. But on the whole, I laughed a lot. I thought the dialogue was so impressive. Um, I think it's a really great film, but maybe maybe it's just a female thing. I'm not too sure, because I, I really loved that so much more than This Is The End. Right. I've not seen This Is The End, and weirdly I'm not that predisposed towards it. I'm, I'm in, in Lee's corner here. That whole sort of Apatow pers- kind of personality and uh, improv-driven frat boy slash frat girl type comedy just really grinds my gears for the most part. <laughs> so, um, so I'm kind of... I don't really know if I'd be any more predisposed to this as the end. I Look, I really liked what the heat was going for, but I just felt like it didn't fully commit to it. I, 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 I feel like Paul Feig wasn't the right director for this kind of film. I, I, I like Sandra Bullock and Melissa McCarthy's kind of dynamic. I, I really want Melissa McCarthy to play a different role, like at the like, or, or, or at least turn a different shade on it. Like at the moment, it's like you're still that character from Bridesmaids, you know, yeah. even to the point of being, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, cop slash, you know, and it's and it's kind of. I wanted this, I thought, you know what, this really could have been bad girls. This could have been bad boys, but with women, and it would have been awesome. Like, it had me um, blaspheming afterwards, because I was thinking, you know what, this is the first film in history that I thought, Michael Bay should have made this. <laughs> like, it should have, like, I, I, I thought, imagine Sandra Bullock and Melissa McCarthy cracking this case as helicopters go slow-mo overhead and give them slow-motion hero shots and, you know, and kind of and really take the piss out of that kind of movie um, and, and just, you know, have, have these women in it showing how ridiculous it all is. Instead, it was kind of directed like a sitcom. It just kind of felt like 70s television. And uh, the, the humour kind of fell flat as much as high for me. And I, I don't know, I found the laughs really sporadic. I mean, they were certainly there for me, but I just kind of... I, I just felt it was a bit of a half-assed effort. Um, I, I just re- really wanted it to kind of embrace that crazy kind of uh, buddy cop style, you know, lethal weapon bad boys type thing. Sure. I think, I mean, that's that's an interesting point. I think that would be, would have been really cool to see if it was taken to that extreme. I wonder, though, and um, this would be from more of a producing point of view, if if you're dealing with helicopters, obviously the budget goes up. Is it possible that although they are both, you know, Sandra Bullock, especially massive stars at the moment, would they have felt uncomfortable investing that much money in a female-centric comedy? Was that, it too big a risk? That's a great point. That's an interesting point. And it's, I didn't think about this, but it wasn't until you just said that, Christy. These, these are probably the two America's two most bankable actresses right now. Yeah, and they're still probably worried about making their money back. I mean, you know, from from being over there this last month, a lot of people have been talking about comedy. I had a lot of meetings about comedy and people saying, oh, you know, it doesn't always translate depending on the country and there's this and that. And, you know, I was actually reading um, The Killing Spree just yesterday, um, which is on the blacklist. One of, my, one of my friends suggested I read it. And immediately 
the the lead's voice sounds like Seth Rogen to me as I was reading mm-hmm. it. And so obviously you guys will both hate it because it's that whole Avatar <laughs> school of comedy. But it was amazing because I was like, wow, people are actually pitching these frat boy style comedies because they will make their money back. People will go, it'll have the same effect as this is the end. Whilst the heat didn't actually have that. People weren't like, oh, you've got to see it. Whilst, I, I don't know, maybe like part of me was as a female filmmaker going, come on, yeah, this dialogue's cool, Melissa McCarthy's awesome, they've done a really good job of this, but my expectation isn't going to be as high because I know at the same time that we don't get those opportunities to make those kind of comedies. But the boys, mm. the boys do, you mm. know, you see it all the time. This is true. Uh, absolutely. Well, if it's if it's anything, uh, the heat. Uh, both films, both this is the end. And the heat have been huge hits, um, but the heat has been much bigger. So, hopefully, they've op- hopefully they're opening a door. Another pretty big international hit that we've seen this month has been uh, Pacific Rim, <laughs> uh, which is a film like it's got so many people excited because it's basically a film that combines the big monster battles of Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, but with the emotional depth and well-crafted dialogue of Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's what the billboard looked like. I was in LA and there's like a billboard of some weird creature and the Sydney Harbour Bridge is behind it and I would laugh every time I saw it. I was like, I don't want to see that. That looks ridiculous. (laughs) Well, look, I... I am not going to make any friends uh, with with this uh, review because... I, this sort of, it's, it's almost become like geek cred, like the people who like this film really get it. And the people who don't, you know, they're the people we don't want to know. You know, this <laughs> is, it's really, it's, it's really drawn a line in the sand and I don't get it. Like I, I, I'm, I think the, the characters are terrible. I think the dialogue is awful. The acting's atrocious, even from people I would expect better acting from. Uh, the action is fairly well executed. I'll give them that, but it really just, I, I, I do not see the film that everyone's raving about. Like, I, 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 it does not look significantly better than Transformers to me. I don't, I don't see the divide. I know, I know everyone loves Guillermo del Toro. I like most of his films quite a lot. But, um, yeah, I, I do not see it. And So, so people not... really, so I haven't seen it, so, again, I shouldn't, shouldn't mm. comment just on a billboard, but I didn't realise so many people liked it. Yeah, a lot of a lot of people are really flipping out for it, and, and it's a genuine love. I mean, uh, people are genuinely in love with this film. And I mean, geeks have a bit of a boner for Del Toro. They always have. <laughs> I have not. I'm a bit like you, Lee. I, I really like a lot of his stuff, but I don't. I I love Pan's Labyrinth, and that's about it. I've not seen this. Um, it looks like a big kind of spectacle film, but I've been hearing that it's it hits some people quite emotionally. Like some people have kind of mm. been digging the characters or something. Is that that totally bounced off you? Yeah, no, completely. I mean, what characters? I, I, I am not. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's great. I'm glad people are enjoying it. I'm glad they, they've got a big-budget film that they feel speaks to them on this scale, and I'm glad it's doing well, uh, you know, more power to them, but I, I genuinely do not see the film that everyone's talking about. Right. And if, if that's not going to make people angry, the following statement will. A film I loved more than Pacific Rim and more than Man of Steel and more than Star Trek Into Darkness, a film I preferred over all of those, is The Lone Ranger. 
Has that done well in the box office? I mean, I heard people saying some pretty funny stuff about it in America. So it, it, it's bombed. I mean, it's basically bombed, <laughs> right. and uh, it's people this, are... <laughs> It's this year's John Carter. Yeah. Oh, uh, guys, that's so upsetting. I have. I have to say though, I kind of agree. Look, let's put it on front street. I think this is the, from what I've seen so far, this is the worst summer US movie slate in memory. Everything I've seen bar, I think, Iron Man 3 has kind of been incredibly average. I felt that the Lone Ranger, compared to those films you just mentioned, is the least average of the bunch, of that bunch. <laughs> That's uh, a poster quote. <laughs> the least well, average. Look, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that Verbinski's first film was Mousetrap, because I think that's how he directs certainly action films. I mean, like Pirates, the second Pirates of the Caribbean film, this is basically the entire film is one big setup for a big action payoff. And yeah, it lags a bit in the middle, and, and I know that's not everyone's cup of tea, but this really feels to me as if this is what Buster Keaton would do with $200 million. He would have this elaborate choreographed thing where every, everything's clear it's all it's all happening but it's all uh quite extraordinary um all, all these all these little little setups and payoffs I, I yeah the thing with um and and I'm sure Johnny Depp would um uh, Buster Keaton would play Tonto just like Johnny Depp mm. um but Johnny Depp certainly tries to but look I think you're absolutely right I think the action in this film is excellent and it's um, and it's also apparently one of the reasons why the budget was so ridiculously huge is because he um, a lot of it was stunt work, right? And he's not as reliant on CG as a lot of his contemporaries. And I think that's what I found refreshing about this film. It's cla- it, being a western. It's kind of you know uh, a little bit mandatory, but it's classically shot you know frames are held for more than two and a half seconds um you can see all the action and make out what the fuck's going on like i think he lingers a little too long on certain things there's no reason this film has to be two and a half hours long but yeah um but i really and you know i liked i liked the the dynamic between um depp and hammer look even though i think you know, Depp Shtick is wearing thin, and the jokes are really hit and miss in this. Silver does a lot of the heavy lifting, um, <laughs> that, the horse. But, but you know, I think it rolls along. It feels it's weird because I, I just think the fact that you just don't have digital CGI confetti all over the screen like every other blockbuster these days. It just felt like, oh wow, I can actually look at an image and take it all in. So I found that refreshing. I think it's got some real tonal issues. Like you don't have the, you know, the the Buster Keaton esque Tonto shtick back to back with scenes of genocide um, of the Native Americans. That yeah doesn't quite mesh. Um, Look, I, I think I, I give them credit for at least taking a stab at addressing it that in a serious way. I do think they're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't. And I'm not sure how they could have made this film without either making it way too depressing and, and full-on or uh, being or irresponsibly ignoring it. Uh, I really don't know what... I mean, the, the answer I think most people would give is don't do it at all. Yeah. Uh, which, okay, that's fair enough. But I think given the type of film they were making, this is probably the right line they could have walked. And I have to say, too, I, the thing I, I kind of like most about this film, because it's got this weird wraparound structure um, mm. where you've got... 
elderly Johnny Depp talk telling the story to the kid. And for a while, I'm like, why are they doing this? It's just taking up time. And then as events in the film began to unfold, um, particularly in regard to Tom Wilkinson's scheme and stuff that goes on with the cavalry and, and things like that, it started making me think, oh, this is a film about the unreliable nature of Old West mythology. Hmm. And it's and it's about how you know like history is written by the winners and it's and it's this sort of thing about how the how America has eulogized the old west and 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 how patently bullshit most of it is and and you know like down to the fact that when the film is first introduced the first time you see Lone Ranger and Tonto they're robbing a bank and the kids like wait I thought they were heroes and it, hmm. it all starts the whole film is about question what you've heard because it's not true. It was, you know, engineered by this and that, and you know, and that's what I found the most interesting aspect of the film, um, and I think that was what kind of kept me in there. I mean, there's other stuff like there's weird stuff that's clearly remnants from previous drafts when there were werewolves involved, like they keep talking about creatures and nature being out of balance and nothing ever pays off. So it's, you know, yeah. it's 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 a bit of a mess. But I've got to say, for the most part, I found it an interesting and likable mess that didn't you know, ocularly rape me. <laughs> Charming term. Um, this is this is actually kind of weird because you and I are agreeing way more than, than we do. Christy, Paul and I have a bit of a history of every now and then a film will come up that will divide us, uh, like, to, to the most polar extremes. Um, but we don't seem to be having any of those uh, this month, which is great. So on that on that uh, thought, Paul, what did you think of To the Wonder? <laughs> nice. I, I assume you must have loved it as much as I did, because we're right. We're in sync so much. We this are month. totally, aren't we? Yeah. Um, to the yeah, it led me to the wonder why Terence Malick <laughs> fucking made it. Um, <laughs> it's uh, look. I'm a huge fan of Terence Malick, Christy. You don't understand. I think. Badlands, The Thin Red Line, and uh, The Tree of Life are masterpieces. I think they're uh, paragons of American cinema. I I, I even really like The New World, which a lot of people don't like. And I like Days of Heaven as well uh, quite a bit. It's one of the most physically beautiful films ever made. So imagine my shock and surprise and profound disappointment when To the Wonder just plays like Malick parody from beginning to end. It feels like outtakes from the epic Tree of Life shoot kind of cobbled together um, with really substandard actors. Like, I, I just feel like compared to the stuff um, he's made before, and, I mean, Brad Pitt gives such a heartbreaking performance in Tree of Life. So when you see Ben Affleck kind of monosyllabically moping around to the wonder, and Olga Kurilenko, who I'm sorry, they really need to stop persisting with Olga Kurilenko as a lead actress. She doesn't have the game. And it just feels so minor compared to Tree of Life. Like, Tree of Life, you know, tackles these epic themes, and it's all about, you know, man's relationship with God. And then this film tries to do it, and it just feels like, it feels like a college student's version. Um, it just feels so, and it, and it winds up feeling like third-rate soap opera. There's imagery in this film that made me snicker to myself and it's kind of like it's like the film that it's like what <laughs> um warhorse or the terminal out of steven spielberg it's like you know the films that directors you love make that show all the traits of their detractors and you know you you, you kind of defend this director and go 
and then they make that film, you're like, oh, damn it. Okay, now they've done everything in that film that their detractors go off about. This was that film for Malik for me. It was like everything that Malik detractors say about his films, I saw in this film. I just thought it was, I thought it was really, really average. Um, Emmanuel Uzbeki's cinematography, he feels like a demented party clown running up to the actors all the time going, booga, booga, booga. Booga, booga, booga. And like, it's like, will you just back the camera off and stop running up to me like a mad person? Other than that, look, it does have beautiful imagery in it, as every Malik film does. I will absolutely. And if it wasn't for the sheer physical beauty a lot of, of a lot of this film, I would declare it did not work for me on any conceivable level. Oh my gosh, there's so many films I don't want to see now. <laughs> no, 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 no. Look, I, I, I'm amazed the ref didn't come in at that point because Paul was pummeling it and somebody needs to come in and throw in the towel. Okay. Um, <laughs> this is the tw- 12th round Rocky comeback. This is it. Um, yes, it is, uh, it is a step down from his last film because his last film was a treatise on all of existence. And if you can find a way to step up from that, parallel universes maybe, I don't know. But... Of course, his next film was going to be a step down. Um, it's... Okay. Malik is so far away from traditional ma- narrative filmmaking at this point that it's so easy to ridicule what he does, but he's pushing the envelope in a very specific way, in a very specific direction, um, that no other filmmaker is doing. And, and in films such as these, I, th- I think we, 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 we bristle when he applies that to smaller stories because it feels like such a grand way of filmmaking. For me, this was a film that had some incredible depth to it. It's about characters with real blocks. You know, Affleck's character can't love, another character can't feel happy, and uh, the, the priest can't connect to his own faith. Uh, another character is completely disconnected from, from the world. These are not minor themes, and I think he handles them really well without putting a traditional three-act structure over it, and I, I think that even the priest who loses his faith trope, which is definitely being done to death at this point, it, it even feels fresh the way Malik shoots it, the way he he, he depicts it. Um, I, I found this an incredibly sad and profound film that 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 for me stands up there with his best work. Wow! <laughs> I thought is, we'd... is there is there. Does any of that explain why Olga Kurilenko's character seems like she has a head injury in the second half of the film? Uh, deleted scene? I don't know. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, it's some flowers for Algernon shit. Like, by the end of the film, she's acting like a five-year-old. Like, it's just baffling. Um, well, look, look at how Affleck's character is treating her. You know, he's not acting like someone much older. Like, it's just... No, no, that's what the film is about. These are not mistakes that you've noticed that Malik forgot to address. These are these are character flaws that he's, that make the not, spine of the he's film. Treating it, but he's treating it like an afterthought. He's not treating it like an infant. No, no, that's... Uh, yeah. Like, you know, like, it's just... It's just ridiculous. Like, so much that happens in this film. These characters do things that... You know that movie that was out last year, Like Crazy? It was mm. kind of like a subversion of that, like Malik's riff on that. Like this is Malik remaking love, like crazy, basically for me. I just, okay, yeah. Okay, uh, Christy, who, which which of these arguments was more persuasive? Look, I don't know. To to be really honest, I love Ben Affleck, but after Argo, and maybe it's also because he was directing 
I'm starting to feel a little bit like he can be quite 2D. <laughs> and um, and so as soon as you, you kind of went, oh, I feel like this and I feel like, I was like, okay, there's, there's a really great chance there that he's probably not carrying the show very well. I, uh, we might need to swap him with Damon, you know, like that. I kind of get that a bit with him now. He does one type of thing, mm-hmm. which I feel yeah. bad about saying because I, I feel like, you know, you can be very different and you can be better than your usual self if you have the right director. And, you know, there's, there's so many factors and being an actor is a hard job, but yeah, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not too keen to say it. You guys aren't really selling any of these films for me. Okay. Fair enough. All right. All right. Paul, Paul won that <laughs> round, but, but well, I'll be back jo- when, when, when Malik makes the sequel to <laughs> the wonder, uh, I will make my case. I will re prosecute it. All right, well, it's, it's time again to do one of our sort of mini filmmaker segments where we look at the career of a filmmaker whose uh, career has come to an end and they've made uh, five or fewer films, somebody who might not uh, get picked by one of our guests. And uh, this month we're looking at the filmography of Adrian Shelley, who, um, who was a director, she was also an actress, who uh, worked in a lot of American indie films. She got her break in a couple of Hal Hartley films. She did um, a lot of indie stuff, a lot of TV. And then she started making uh, films. She started writing and directing. Now, her stuff is mostly difficult to find, especially her shorts. She made. She basically alternated between making a short film and a feature film. Uh, she made Urban Legend in 1994, which was a short uh, Lois Lives a Little in 1997 and The Shadows of Bob and Zelda uh, in 2000. Three shorts in between her features, which we have not been able to track down. But I don't want to dwell too much on the circumstances surrounding her death uh, because she was very young and it was, it was very tragic. But the film that she was making when she died, uh, Waitress, in 2007, is the one that really put her on the map and got her a lot of attention. That's what most people know her from. But it was actually her third feature. Now, her first film was Suddenly Manhattan in 1996, which is very, very difficult to find and is sort of... It's... I, I want to call it a curio. It, it's, 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 one of the mo- it's one of the oddest films I've seen from this sort of mid-90s... Uh, indie boom. It's basically like a Woody Allen film, as, as obvious as that is to say about an indie film set in New York. The jazz score really, really underlines that that's what she's going for, but all the characters feel like they're out of a David Lynch film. <laughs> and it's such a, an odd feature to debut with, and it, I'm not convinced it all works, but it's so weird and unique and different to everything else being made at the time, that it, it, it's a really fascinating watch. Do you think it's the Hell Hartley influence? Like maybe it that sort of deadpan dialogue and kind of, you know, odd random things kind of happening? Look, it, it, it's very possible. I know uh, certainly wh- there, there is a phenomenon when actors start to direct films, mm. they tend to echo the style of... Uh, their most frequent directorial collaborator. And that might have been the the case with Suddenly Manhattan. And I think as she goes along, she sort of develops her own style, which is why I think uh, Waitress was such a big hit, because it's it's so... The voice is so different from from everything else we're hearing. 
But her next feature, her second film, was I'll Take You There in 1999, which was about a broken-hearted man trying to win his wife back and goes on a road trip with a girl he's just been on one date with that he's, his sister tried to set him up with. And who he offended horribly. Who he offended their, horribly. On their first date. And she kind of falls apart. Like, it's kind of this, this date kind of jogs her out of whatever happy reverie that she was kind of living in and decides that, oh, my God, like, our conversation unraveled everything and had me, sick, like, thinking about everything in my life and realising that everything I thought was wrong. Mm. And begins attaching herself to it, kind of, oh, not in a, but not in a, not in a submissive way at all, in a more a stalkerish kind of, um, right, you and me are going to find some fucking answers type way. Well, she actually was really ahead of her time because this is like the manic pixie dream girl destroyed before it even took off. Like, she is destroying that stereotype and it didn't even really exist back then. The spine of her work is setups that sound like traditional romantic comedies. They're safe, they're fluffy, they're funny. But when she makes them, they've got a real edge to them and no character is easy and no situation that the character's in are easy. It's about as far removed from a focus group rom-com as you can imagine. But that's yeah, taking yeah. away everything that's superficial about life as well. Like you, you look at Waitress and to, to see someone like Kerry Russell, who's just so strikingly beautiful, playing someone that doesn't really invest in themselves and, you know, is uneducated or whatever, like all those little things, mm. it works against the idea of that character, like or, or who she would play. And it's a very pretty looking town and everything looks really perfect in that, the pie shop and you know what I mean? But it works against that. It's, it's always like trying to push the point that things aren't always as they seem. And especially, especially in a relationship point of view, you know, that people can put themselves through quite a lot. Like she seems to deal with abuse a lot, especially mm. emotional abuse in, in her themes. Absolutely. None of these um, films, particularly Waitress, was not at all what I expected it to be. And as you say, it, start, it sets up this kind of gateway of being this very uh, happy, fluffy kind of movie, which I thought it, was, thought it was when I saw the trailer and whatnot. And then you watch it, and it's, yeah, it's so much of it is about abuse and about um, obsessive and possessive relationships. And, like, so, like everybody's having affairs, and it's like... And not being condemned for it by the film, no. which I, I find really interesting because that's it's, it's what you automatically expect from films like this is to condemn anyone who has an affair. They get punished for it, and it doesn't happen here. Well, here it's almost an aspiration because who they're yeah. with is usually horrible, but in some cases not. Um, but sort of treated as an exploratory thing. Yeah, it's got this really kind of interesting and, as you say, non-moralistic view on relationships that's quite refreshing. And, and yeah, it gives the film a... Yeah, a it's non-judgmental, a, a though, isn't it? Mm. Exactly. Non-judgmental. And yeah. even, like, towards the end, like, we, we don't have that whole sunshine and lollipops. I mean, she's she's got it together. She she builds up the courage to get rid of him and everything. But it didn't it didn't seem too hammy. Or it, just, it just seemed like a life story. It's mm. what you go through. It's your rite of passage. I mean, you know, from a female perspective, I saw it when it first came out and, you know, I watched it again recently and then I was, I was kind of like, oh my goodness, it's touched me in such a different way because I've had such different experiences in those six years or whatever it's been since it was released that it really affected me. It really upset me because I see so much of that, you know, I've experienced that and you kind of start understanding that that kind of gritty and and the harsh reality of relationships for some people and 
why you enter into those kind of situations. It's, it's a, it's a really interesting film. And then to have her, you know, die the way she did, it's kind of weird. And I found it almost eerie to know that, you know, by the hands of a man again, and, you know, thank God they've got that whole scholarship uh, program in place under her name too. Yeah, that's great. Was it the Adrian Shelley uh, Foundation.org? Um, yeah. I believe is the website, and it's about uh, fostering female filmmakers. And we'll put a link on the website yeah. right, if you want to go have a look. Interestingly, her next film probably would have been Serious Moonlight, which was the script um, she, which she was looking to direct afterwards. Now, after she died, um, Cheryl Hines, who was one of the actresses in Waitress, actually directed it, uh, and it was, you know, again, uh, what looks like a standard rom-com. Uh, you know, Meg Ryan finds out her husband's been cheating and decides to trap him in their holiday house until he loves her again. And it, you keep expecting it to go to that fluffy, safe area, but it's really, really quite edgy throughout. And I think that's a really good indication, like from Waitress to Serious Moonlight, of what her career might have been, of taking these, uh, these, this safe genre and, and giving it some real teeth. Mm. Do you think, I mean, in particular, and, you know, we were talking before as well about the heat, that when you do have a female protagonist and you, and you do have very female issues, that it's essential to have a female director? Do you think it would have been very different had she passed it on to a male director? Possibly. I'm, look, I'm not, I'm not really sure where I stand on, on that issue in particular, whether the director needs to have had those, the specific, specific yeah. experiences of the character. But I, I like that it was a comic actress who took it on, someone with, with sort of a similar, a vaguely similar career to hers. It, it felt like a natural progression. Yeah, I feel like to a certain extent it's probably a kind of a mindset or a view of the world or a sense of humour that more than a gender that that kind of, that needs to, you know, find a kindred spirit there. Um, and and that's why I kind of feel maybe Hines and, and Shelley had that. It is... As with so many of the, the, the mini hyphenates, it is a, a career cut tragically short and hopefully we can, as film fans, remember not the circumstances surrounding her death but her work, uh, which, if you haven't seen it, I strongly suggest you all go seek them out. Agreed. Yeah, definitely. All right, Christy, please tell us whom have you picked for your Hellas for Hyphenates Filmmaker of the Month? Yes, well, um, it's no secret that I have an obsession with Danish film. And so I've picked Suzanne Beer because I just think she's incredible and I think she makes amazing choices and just oh, tells awesome stories. Fantastic. When, when did you uh, first become a fan? I think it was after I saw After the Wedding. Um mm or I should say during watching After the Wedding, <laughs> I, I don't think I'd ever cared so much about every character in a film and was so glued and I cried for about 40 minutes um, when I left the oh, cinema wow. and I was just so invested and um, and I just I hadn't felt like that, you know, since I think I saw Bambi in the fire when I was four and kind of woke up in the cinema and went, what the hell is happening on the screen? Um, but it was, you know, it was, it was amazing to feel that way again about film. And, and it, you know, I wasn't even, I wasn't making film then. I, I had no interest in doing that. I, I was acting. Um, but I, I started to feel like a lot of it was paint by numbers for me at the cinema. And finally I felt touched again 
and I just wanted to to see more of her stuff and I just I just find her incredible and I think it uh, the stuff like the stories that she tells are so well written I don't know what the development process is for them in Denmark um, but they're just doing great things and they're doing it right whatever it is have you been able to track down any of her early stuff because I, I basically found her early 90s work, Freud leaving home in 91, Brevetil Jonas in 92, Lucien in 93, uh, and I'm not even going to try pronouncing that, Det familian. Sorry to all <laughs> or, of our Danish or, listeners. Or how about its uh, English title, Family Matters? Yeah, I probably should have gone with that, mm. in 94. Uh, and I cannot find these anywhere. I scoured as many, uh, as many foreign uh, Amazons as I could. <laughs> That sounds amazing. You scoured foreign Amazon. <laughs> and and I, I couldn't find any of them. The, the earliest films of hers I could find was Pensionette Oscar in 1995. AKA like it never was before. How much of her early stuff uh, have you been able to get into? Well, okay, so I watched... Um, oh, gosh, and now I'm going to forget the English name of it and not remember the Danish one because it makes no sense in my brain. Um, my one and only. That's it. Ah, oh, yes, the one, the one, the one and, and only. only in 99, yep. Yeah. I mean, gosh, I found that it was so bizarre because I, I feel like it's so different to After the Wedding and yeah. In a Better World. Um, you know, different writer, of course, to, to both those films. Uh, but it, I, don't, I don't know if you, you watched it or not, Lee, but it freaked me out mm. that there were just, I don't know, style-wise there were a lot of similarities between something I just shot and I kind oh, of, okay. it looked like I'd been heavily influenced by her for wow. <laughs> well, that film. And I was like, and I hadn't seen it yet. That's kind of scary. Um, but it, yeah, it was, it was kind of interesting. And I, it made me really curious to see more of her stuff from back then, because now it's so epic in comparison. Like, obviously she's dealing with much larger budgets. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm, that's kind of like the biggest difference that you're going to see in those scenarios where you've got something like there's a comedy that's more compact naturally people are going to trust you with that when you're starting out as a director more so than those bigger films like After the Wedding and In a Better World. I think like you, I, I came to her work through like her recent uh, films. I uh, In a Better World was my the first film of hers I saw and then I saw Love is All You Need. And going back and seeing uh, the the three films I was able to see from her 90s uh, period, the uh, Pension and Oscar, Secton, and the one and only, it, it feels like a completely different filmmaker. Yeah. Um, that the tone is, I mean, the one and only uh, that that you were talking about before, sort of, it, it. I don't think it starts well, but I think it improves as it goes along. But it's there. There are weird music choices mm. and sort of jaunty editing that doesn't really fit the tone. There's a. She's got a bizarre editing style in the nineties that just kind of random jump cuts that seem like I don't like. I, I, I'd struggle to see what effect they were going for. Like, it wasn't because it wasn't a time to unsettle the audience, nor was it a time to compress information. It was just kind of really, it was almost like, oh, this is the best angle we had of this. It, it's, it's, yeah. It's seen, yeah, it seemed kind of elliptical. I found it's between the one and only, and she made a film in 2000 called Once in a Lifetime that I haven't seen, but it looks very much in keeping with her 90s work. But, like, from those films, like, Credo, a.k.a. Sexton, feels like her kind of riff on, like, a De Palma-type film that kind of starts reasonably interesting in, interestingly um, 
about this relationship between these two women and, 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 you know, uh, this, uh, this woman that sort of falls under the thrall of this psychiatrist that mm. sort of leads to this cult. But it, it, it's, it starts off really compellingly and then just kind of devolves into nonsense. And, and then, but, but then I found like between, um, yeah, between the one and only and, um, and open hearts, it, it was just this quantum leap and it was like a completely different filmmaker. And as Lee said, and it's like, she, it's like she embraces the dogma aesthetic with a vengeance mm. um, yeah. in, in open hearts and just gets to the emotional truth of everything all of a sudden. And it's like, whoa. And I, I was just, because I watched the films chronologically, I'd never seen a Suzanne Beer be- uh, film before this. And watching that progression all of a sudden was just really beautifully jarring. You know, <laughs> it was like, I just, I, yeah, I, 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 I it was... Um, it was like watching, uh, uh, you know, a caterpillar turn into a butterfly. <laughs> Which is a good thing, thank goodness. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, you want filmmakers to get better as they go along, <laughs> of course. But, but even though I liked uh, Pension at Oscar, I, I, yeah, I just did not connect with her 90s films. I didn't, like, Sexton didn't do it for me. And I, I think you're right that Open Hearts is when something clicks. Mm. And, yeah, she, she runs with this dogma style. Um, ah, and you know what? Thanks no. to IMDb, because I was like, I wonder if, you know, suddenly she started working with Anders Thomas Jensen, who I think is in, like he's he wrote after the wedding, and he also wrote in a better world. Mm. But he's um, a yeah, he's a regular co-writer, isn't? Oh, yeah, he's re- her regular screenwriter, isn't he? Yeah, but that's the first film that she's directed that he's written. Ah, there you go. Boom. So maybe it came down to having an understanding, like a you know, like a, I think sometimes it's your team, you know, like. I don't know what DP she might have been using in her early days or maybe she changed it up a lot. You know, I could be completely wrong. Mm. But I think sometimes people see things very differently to you or you might be used to putting a lot of trust in a DP's hands and all of a sudden with another DP that needs to know exactly down to the lens you want to use, you know, and I think that can affect how you direct things in a lot of ways and quite possibly maybe that was it for her. She just needed the right kind of writer. That's need, a great. That's a great point. Um, need to find that kindred spirit, yeah. And that that may have been what what sort of kicked off this next phase of her career, and and certainly working with uh, actors like Mads Mikkelsen and uh, Paprika Steen, who are both fantastic in her films, and and it, it certainly feel like they really get the material. It feels like she's got a really good relationship with the actors that she works with. And they let it breathe. I mean, that's what's so interesting, though, as well with that that earlier film. Like seeing her do comedy, I was like, oh, maybe. I was like, maybe comedy wasn't her thing. Maybe drama's her thing because she understands how to let people take in the moment. You know, and like with a lot of European cinema, they're not forcing us onto the next thing. But mm. with those jump cuts you were talking about earlier, like it, it felt like she wasn't really sure when she's meant to get out. You know, yeah. like. Like it, and it, it happens a lot to people. I think people don't know how long to stay in for and how, you know, and how quickly to get out with comedy and that could have had an effect too. Mm. Yeah, um, that's that's an excellent point. I'm making so many excuses for her. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, right, you you don't pretty, need to from this point on. It has nothing that's, to do with her, right? Nothing. Because, yeah, because <laughs> yeah, you look at the, her films in the 2000s and they're just, they're terrific. Yeah. Um, Brothers was mm. the one. Uh, it's probably my personal favourite. Just so bracing. Like the, um, it's such an involving emotional drama, 
and so touching at times and then so unbelievably unsettling mm. at other times and just simple acts of violence and like things we've seen in films a million times like you know the guy starts tearing tearing apart the house but there's something really immediate and primal about it and i'm not even sure i can put my finger on what she's doing um mm. to make it so but the, there's stuff in that film that really kind of disturbed me well, she, she's avoiding the easy option every time. Every time there's a chance, uh, every time you think you know what she's going to do, she does something else, and it's something that feels like exactly what people, not necessarily yourself, but what people would do in that situation. Absolutely. And and all of the characters in the film, all you can see where they're all coming from. Like, I mean, I mean, he's, I mean, the 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 soldier is obviously in the wrong but his mind is so destroyed and we've seen what's done that and you can see why you can see his mental how his mental disintegration has has progressed and that everybody is doing what they feel is the right thing and it's just or, or what they can help and it's so heartbreaking and connie nielsen's character and she's terrific in it too mm. but she plays she's written so beautifully like you know like when when he's like she she's absolutely patient and and giving and everything but he, when he starts abusing her you see her begin to pull back and it's like and, and you really get that kind of i'm still here for you but that's not fucking okay and i really like that about about her character that she was she was she had that strength mm. um and in all her films and but in danish films in general i feel like that they've got beautiful actors that are so easily vulnerable you know so truthful and mm. like i i was scared to watch her english films i just didn't really want to do that i i don't know what that's about i'm preserving some kind of concept of her in my head i think but i you know with things we lost in the fire i just i don't know I, it still doesn't compare for me to after the wedding or in a better world like it just it's doesn't like she's using she's using the same kind of tricks that she usually uses and she's mm. she's giving them lots of breathing space and she's shooting from afar and doing her close-ups and whatever else but it just it doesn't hit home like I still cried in it yes yeah, yeah. um but there's something different it's interesting because that that one actually I was a bit worried to, to to watch it as well because there's whenever a I guess a, a great dramatic European director gets pulled in by Hollywood you, you know you get I guess the career that Lasse Hallstrom has had, um, it's, it always terrifies me. And so I, I came quite cautiously to things we lost in the fire. Uh, but, but I actually loved it. I, I think it's, it almost stands with, with, with her other work. I mean, certainly in comparison to, to a lot of American dramas from the last five years, well, it's yeah. head and shoulders. Yeah. For me, the film only really fumbles the beats to in the last sort of fifteen minutes. It, there's a there's a few touches that just push it into sentimentality that I wish it hadn't gone for. The rest of the film I thought was fantastic. I thought it was really great and um, really strong. And the American kind of studio environment let Suzanne do her thing. You know, mm. like it, it felt very much like, yeah, this is from the same director as these other things. As you say, Christy, all the same touches, all the same tricks, all the same um, emotional nuances. But I just, I don't know, there was just something, there's something different for me. And may, I don't know, maybe also just, you know, when you're watching European films, you're usually watching an actor that you don't know a lot yeah. about. And so maybe it's easier to kind of then invest in them because they're new to you. 
Mm. You know, it's it's not like watching Australian TV where you see the same people over and over again. You're like, hold on, <laughs> you're a criminal, but you're a cop in that other show, and I'm still you're still a cop in my head. You know. So I know I just kept watching um, uh, after the wedding, thinking, why is Hannibal Lecter in charity work? <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> He's going to eat you all. Um, after the wedding, I thought it had a really interesting structure because you kept expecting the fact that. This, this billionaire had kind of laid out this plan. You kept expecting it to be nefarious. You kept expecting at some point that, to, that it was about, you know, power and control and about getting back at people. And the fact that it wasn't um, was just constantly surprising. Mm. It's so good. Like, I, I, I can't even remember how many people I've told to see that film. Like, any time anyone's writing a drama that I know, I'm like, watch After the Wedding. <laughs> I certainly started to notice Beer after seeing In a Better World in 2010, which I think won the Best Foreign Language Oscar. I'm not sure. It did. Yeah. It did. But just such a strong sense of character and, and, and such huge themes that every character moment relates to this idea of the laws of the jungle versus, you know, the idea of pacifism and ideals versus practicality. And she just goes to this primal heart, like the... the the heart versus the intellectual and it's just all laid out bare but all through the eyes of incredibly real incredibly relatable characters and the fact that she thrives on that complexity and does it with such what seems like such ease just floored me it's such a great film though like i, I feel like there, there's so much you can connect with from the child actors to the adult actors like it's just it has everything in there mm. But but again, it's it's a great screenwriter, you know. And as as much as you can be an exceptional director, you know, you you need to have that awesome script to be playing with there. Absolutely. Now, have you guys seen Love Is All You Need from last year? No, um, and I didn't see it because I think I hated the poster as well, and I was like. In my head, I felt like they'd stolen her and I wanted her to be sent back to Denmark. It's just so silly. <laughs> well, it's not a US film, is it? It's, is it Danish or it's, it seems to be set in Italy? Yeah, from, it's English. It's again, English I haven't language. seen it, but, but I, I, from what I know of it. Well, well, it's English language. Pierce Brosnan is the star. and or one, or Actually, I would say he's the co-star because it's really... Um, I've forgotten the name of the actress. It's like Trini. It's, Tren- it's Trine Denham's yeah, film. So, yeah. I think that's how you say it. Yeah, and she was in uh, In a Better World. Of course, yeah. But yeah, Love is All You Need, one of the reasons I wanted to stand up and applaud her at the end of that film was that it seemed like the biggest magic trick uh, of making a a film with the title. The original title is The Bald Hairdresser in, uh, back in, in Denmark. <laughs> But uh, calling a film Love Is All You Need, having a flowery poster uh, with, you know, that, that look, basically looks like a version of It's Complicated and, <laughs> uh, and, and opening titles which totally suck you in into thinking that. And it's not that at all. It's, it's I mean, it's not as hard-hitting as something like In A Better World or Brothers, but it's not, she has not sold out at all. I mean, I know it doesn't look good, but it's it's really extraordinary, and it was one of my favourite films of last year. I talked about it on, on on my website, and I strongly recommend it because she is like the anti 
Um, Paul, who's Nancy, that? Nancy Myers. Thank you, Nancy Myers. I didn't even have to finish. Uh, <laughs> she, it is the anti-Nancy Myers. It is, it, it is, it is superb, and it, it com- comes back to that trope of parents of the bride, which I think she's quite interested in. Somebody who mm. may feel like their time has passed because there's a new generation getting married, and yet they they have more life to live. And I think that's something that interests her. Uh, a lot across like open hearts and after the wedding and, and love is all you need. And it's, it's a rom-com with real flawed characters occasionally doing stupid things. In fact, frequently doing stupid things. And it, it's basically, it's the best example of this type of film. Do you guys find that Suzanne Beer has this thing with eyes? Like, yeah, she's yeah. always shooting close-ups of eyes, which is actually makes a lot more sense because I was I was noticing that in Things We Lost in the Fire, and you do an ECU on Halle Berry's eyes, mm. and she has such dark eyes, you're actually missing quite a lot. Like you, whilst if you were to do that to a Danish actor who you know you know generally you're getting these really light blue eyes, you're picking up on a lot. Mm. It's it is it's a bizarre thing. It's completely different. I was like, oh, I don't necessarily feel like I'm getting anything. It's not translating as much as it would with someone with very light eyes. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I just I just found that throughout Open Hearts, throughout um, throughout Brothers, throughout um, Things Lost in the Fire. Yeah, just these constant close-ups and shots of, of eyes. Um, and even in stuff like um, even in, it was one of the few things that she was doing in her 90s stuff as well. Like there's stuff in Credo. It's the same uh, sort of deal. It was the closest thing I could find to like a distinctive signature that she has as well I'm as the... toes, guys. That's going to be my thing. Toes? That? Randomly, yeah. Uh, toes. Nice. Toes. You know? Tarantino would like, love yeah. it. <laughs> I know he would, right? Um, like, who is this woman? I have to, <laughs> I have to see your feet. <laughs> so uh, Beer is, you know, definitely at the height of her powers, still going strong. Her next film, are you nervous that she's still oh in Hollywood because she's doing a film yeah. called Serena with Jennifer Lawrence and Bradley Cooper? I don't want that to happen at all. <laughs> oh, hang on. You know, you know what I'm almost sorry. happened, Christy? Sorry? You know what almost happened? She what? was down to the last five for Fifty Shades of Grey. She oh, really? Like, yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, bullet so, dodged. Dodged the bullet there. I can't have that happen. Like, even with Serena, I just feel like, I'm like, I don't want to see those two together again so soon to begin with. Plus, it's like some Western-looking, I just, I was like, there are so many things wrong with this for me right now. I can't, I can't deal with it. <laughs> I don't want it to happen. I'm, I'm so confident after Love Is All You Need that she can take a film that, uh, you know, uh, ostensibly looks like an anti Myers film and make it great that there's almost no type of film that could conquer her, I think. I think <laughs> so I, I, I'm, even though I prefer that she, you know, sticks to the, the Danish films because it's always her best work, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not too uh, worried about Serena. I think she'll, she'll still knock it out of the park. I'm just being selfish. I, I I want to keep her to to European films, but hey, it's going to happen. You got to you got to make money. You got to feed your kids. She'll be back. Kids. She'll be back. I'm I'm, I'm confident. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. Well, Christy, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been so much fun. Nobody swear too much. No, just just the right amount. Good. There were probably a few in there that I didn't even realize because it's just just my form (laughs) (laughs) and we'll see the rest of you next month we're gonna need a bigger boat